When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Woodburn, Oregon. Located in Marion County between Oregon's largest city, Portland, and the state capital of Salem, Woodburn was first settled as part of the Oregon Territory. Originally, the town was called Halsey, but the name was changed after discovering the existence of another Oregon city with the same name. Woodburn was founded by nurseryman Jesse Settlemeyer in 1863, and his partnership with the Oregon and California Railroad brought the first boom to the area. The city's name was changed to Woodburn after a slash burn got out of control and burned down a woodlot in the 1880s. A railroad official who witnessed the fire decided to rename the community. The town was historically a farming community, and to this day, the area celebrates a rich history of agriculture and entrepreneurship and is known as being a very family-friendly community. But in 2008, the lives of multiple families were forever changed when homegrown terrorists were discovered living among them. According to court documents, shortly before 10.30 a.m. on Friday, December 12, 2008, a man called Wells Fargo Bank in Woodburn and told the teller who answered, if you value your life and the life of your employees, you need to get out because I am going to kill you. You are all going to die. The caller told the teller to have all employees leave the bank and check the outside garbage area where they would find a plastic bag containing a cell phone. He explained that he would then call the phone to tell them what to do next. The teller also stated that the caller either had called or was going to call a neighboring bank, West Coast Bank, with similar instructions. The caller spoke calmly, had no accent, and, in the teller's estimation, was likely in his 30s or 40s. The teller called 911, and Woodburn Police Sergeant Jason Alexander and Officer John McCullough responded. The officers checked the outside garbage area of the Wells Fargo Bank and found several large plastic trash bags and a zipper-style bag containing a cell phone. Concerned that the phone might be an explosive device, they called for bomb technicians. Oregon State Police Senior Trooper William Hakim and FBI bomb technician John Halleck examined and x-rayed the phone and confirmed that it was not an explosive device. Another law enforcement officer then took the phone to the Woodburn Police Department and Trooper Hakeem and Agent Halleck left the scene. Because the caller had mentioned the neighboring West Coast Bank, an officer called dispatch and confirmed that the bank had not reported any threatening phone calls. Other officers on the scene at West Coast Bank spoke with their employees and checked that bank for suspicious packages. In walking the exterior of West Coast Bank, one officer noted a large metal box among some bushes 
within a few feet of the exterior of the bank window. The metal box was on a side of the bank that faced a sidewalk and a residential street. The box was painted green, and it looked like a landscaping utility box or part of a sprinkler system. It was almost square in shape with a non-opening lid that created an appearance of a box top. So, Kathy, what I'm picturing is something that is supposed to look like it's a lid that opened, but in fact, it did not. Correct. It had an indent, so it looked like there was a line on top that could have been a lid and turned out it wasn't. Okay. The officer rotated the box 180 degrees, thinking that if it were a utility box, it would not rotate at all. However, the box did rotate, and as it rotated, an attached wire popped out from underneath it. The wire was painted green, the same color as the box, and appeared to have been buried in the bark. In addition to rotating the box, the officer held the box and slightly shifted it side to side. In response to police questions about whether the box was recently placed or already had been in that location, bank employee Lori Perquette and the bank branch manager, Mr. Taylor, each looked at the box. Perquette lifted it slightly and Taylor tipped it to a 45-degree angle. They could see a welded, uneven grid with openings to the inside. Viewed from underneath, looking through that grid, the box appeared to be mostly hollow. When the box tipped, Taylor could see wires inside the hollow area, as well as what looked like a secured motorcycle battery. He also saw a toggle switch on the outside of the box. Taylor and Perquette told the officer that they had not seen the box before, and Perquette then tried to reach the bank's landscaper, who had worked at the bank the previous Sunday. After several hours, the landscaper arrived and said that the box was not his and had not been there before, which prompted law enforcement to treat the box as a suspicious device. They photographed it, recalled the bomb squad, and Trooper Hakeem again responded. While Trooper Hakeem was assessing the device, Woodburn Police Chief Scott Russell and Captain Thomas Tennant, who had been monitoring the situation throughout the day, arrived to assist as needed. Trooper Hakeem inspected the device, including turning it upside down and x-raying it but the x-ray was not conclusive. He ultimately concluded that the device was a very good hoax device. The trooper decided to dismantle the device to ensure that it was safe before entering the device into evidence for investigatory purposes. Do you remember when your sister called in a suspicious device to the local police? No. (laughs) It was immediately after 9-11. As you recall, people were on high alert about everything. Absolutely. And your sister was going to her sister-in-law's house. So in a very upper middle class neighborhood. Right. And you know how your sister's like safety, Marie? You guys are like totally cut from the same cloth. Our dad taught us that. Exactly. His favorite saying was, see what you look at. Yep, exactly. So she sees something suspicious on someone's lawn and tells me how she called the police. And I was like, what was suspicious? And she's like, I don't know. It just looked suspicious. And in my head, I'm thinking like, I never would have called anyone. In a million years. In my family, it's safety fourth. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, check it out. Like turned out to be like a little homemade bomb. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Why did I never hear this? You had to have. Well, where were you living at the time? Lake Tahoe. Okay. See, we didn't care about you then. Yeah. (laughs) She's telling the truth. (laughs) But I just remember like in my head mocking your sister like, are you kidding me? And then when she calls me back, she's like, yeah, it really was a homemade bomb. I was like, what? 
Did they ever find out who did it? Or like, I have was no it idea. there to hurt somebody? Or was it no, the they, owner? Basically, they called her and they're like, hey, what did you see? How did you see it? What made you call this in? And she said, the, my dad. Yeah, safety the, the, first. Seriously. Yep. Like no, it, true. It, was, it was like the whole see what you see thing or whatever. See what you look there at. There you go. Okay, he's haunting you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remember like, just being so impressed by it, you know, whereas I would have been like, look, somebody has something weird on the front lawn. Let's I wonder go if look my and kids see what it is. It. Yeah. <laughs> so Trooper Hakeem has decided that the box was harmless, but mm-hmm. decided that it would probably be best to dismantle the device to ensure that it was safe to be entered into evidence for investigatory purposes. By then it was around 5 o'clock p.m. and it was growing dark and the weather was cold and rainy. I mean, it's Oregon. Exactly. To get out of the weather and darkness, Trooper Hakeem moved the device inside West Coast Bank, which was by then closed to customers. All employees, except for the branch manager, Taylor, and the employee, Perquette, left the bank. Eventually, only Perquette, Taylor, Trooper Hakeem, Chief Russell, and Captain Tennant remained inside the bank, with Captain Tennant assisting Trooper Hakeem with the device. They placed it on the floor with the grid side face up, and Chief Russell was observing from nearby. Taylor went into a conference room to take a phone call, and Perquette, who was standing in the same area as the others, prepared to leave for the night. Trooper Hakeem and Captain Tennant tried without success to remove bolts that appeared to hold the lid on the device. Then Trooper Hakeem used a crowbar to try to pry the lid open. Hitting either the device or the crowbar with a hammer he succeeded in slightly moving the lid. He told the others, there, I got it. A second or so later, the device exploded, causing extensive damage to the immediate area inside the bank and violently projecting shrapnel through the windows, walls, roof, and outside onto the road and into a nearby parked car and a residence. Other law enforcement officers working outside the bank rushed inside. Trooper William Hakeem and Captain Tom Tennant died immediately. They were both 51 years old and married with children. Chief Russell was alive, but one of his legs was partially severed and the other was badly mutilated. He was bleeding profusely from his injuries. Perquette suffered a shrapnel wound to her leg but was able to walk out of the bank. Taylor, the manager, who had been in a conference room, was not injured. Responding law enforcement officers called for emergency medical help for Chief Russell, who was immediately transported to the hospital. He underwent emergency surgery, which resulted in the amputation of his right leg just above the knee. He remained in critical condition for several days due to his multiple injuries, but survived. Immediately after the bombing, state and federal law enforcement focused the investigation on pre-blast photographs of the metal box and post-blast evidence gathered from the West Coast Bank. They also went back to Wells Fargo to take another look at the cell phone. On the night of the bombing, investigators determined that the cell phone left outside of the Wells Fargo Bank was a track phone, which is simply a brand name for one of the cell phones with prepaid minutes that doesn't have a contract. Also called a burner phone. Exactly. Investigators discovered that the track phone found at Wells Fargo was used to call another track phone. Various records reviewed that same night revealed that both phones were purchased at a Walmart and were activated via the internet 
early in the morning on the day of the bombing at 4.22 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. from a Best Western Hotel in North Salem, Oregon, approximately 30 minutes away from the bank. Records also revealed that the second track phone, which by the way was never recovered, was used to place the call to the Wells Fargo Bank and attempted to also place a call around the same time to West Coast Bank, but records revealed that that West Coast Bank phone call never went through. The next day, Saturday, the day following the blast, investigators determined that the phones had been purchased just over two weeks before the bombing at a Walmart in Bend, Oregon, about 150 miles southeast of Woodburn. So the purchase was on November 26, 2008, and records show that airtime cards for the phones had been purchased at a Walmart in Salem, Oregon, shortly after 9 a.m., one day before the bombing. So that would have been Thursday. Investigators viewed video surveillance from the Salem Walmart showing a Caucasian male purchasing the airtime cards, then leaving the parking lot in an older, light blue, small Chevrolet pickup possibly a love model, meaning the light utility vehicle model that was introduced in 1972, long before SUV was a more common term. They were able to make out some, but not all, of the truck's license plate numbers. Kath, do you remember those commercials for the truck? No. So I don't know why I remember this. I really don't. And I don't know how old I was, but they used to call them Chevy Loves and it always had like a heart around it. I do remember the phrase Chevy Love, but I don't remember anything else. Isn't that funny? That's so funny. Was there a song that went with it, a jingle that you recall? Not that I recall, and if I did, I wouldn't (laughs) sing it for you. (laughs) Also on Saturday, the day after the explosion, and continuing into Sunday, investigators searched various databases to develop a list of small Chevrolet pickups of similar age with similar plate numbers. The search returned a Chevrolet pickup registered to a 57-year-old man named Bruce Turnage. After retrieving a DMV photograph of Bruce, investigators determined that he was not the person in the surveillance footage. They then searched the database for individuals with whom he was known to associate. That led detectives to Turnage's son, 32-year-old Joshua Turnage. Based on his DMV photograph and identifying information, Joshua did match the appearance, height, weight, and apparent age of the person in the video footage. Investigators also obtained video surveillance images from the Walmart in Bend and confirmed that the person who purchased the track phones on November 26th resembled the same person in the Salem Walmart footage, who in turn resembled Joshua. Investigators obtained an address for Joshua in North Salem, Oregon. On Sunday, two days after the bombing, Detective Sergeant John Troncosco from the Kaiser Police Department and Lieutenant Duvall from the Oregon State Police drove by Joshua's home in North Salem around 4 o'clock p.m. and saw a Chevy Love pickup truck parked in the driveway that matched the one seen in the Walmart footage. They called for backup. When additional officers arrived, they received permission from adjacent and nearby neighbors to use their properties to obtain vantage points for them so they could observe the home and establish a distant perimeter. At approximately 4.30 p.m., Troncosco and Duval parked Duval's unmarked car in front of Joshua's home and approached the door. At that point, none of the other officers could be seen from Joshua's home. Troncosco and Duval, both wearing plain clothes, 
knocked on the door, and Joshua answered. The detectives explained that they were investigating the Woodburn Bank bombing and were talking to individuals who owned pickup trucks. They asked Joshua if they could speak with him privately. He agreed to talk on the porch and stepped outside and closed the front door. By then, it was getting dark and snowing, and it was very cold, so Troncosco asked Joshua if he would be willing to speak in Duvall's unmarked car to get out of the weather. Troncosco was also concerned that, with the door shut, he and Duvall could not see whether anyone was inside the house near the door, which presented a safety concern. Joshua agreed to speak in Duvall's car, went back inside the house for a few moments, and returned wearing a jacket. Once inside Duvall's car, Troncosco told Joshua that, although he was not under arrest, he was going to advise him of his Miranda rights. In response to questions, Joshua told detectives that he had been driving the blue Chevy Love pickup truck, but that his father owned it. He also told him that he had a biodiesel business with his dad that involved him welding and painting metal, that he was trying to get a second job because he and his dad needed money to expand. He also said that he had been in Bend, Medford, and Eugene on the day of the bobbing, driving his father's larger white pickup truck and only learned of the bobbing through news coverage. In addition, when asked if he owned a computer, Joshua told the detectives that he had owned a laptop, but that it had been stolen and he had not reported the theft. After speaking with Joshua for almost 20 minutes, he agreed to allow the detectives to search his truck. After photographing the truck, Troncosco and Duval agreed that the truck was the one in the surveillance footage. When they asked Joshua to continue their conversation at the police station, he invoked his right to an attorney. At this point, Troncosco placed Joshua under arrest and transported him to the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Within two hours of Joshua's arrest, several law enforcement officers went to Joshua's father's home in Jefferson, which was about 30 minutes south of Salem. Bruce rented a farm with outbuildings that included a garage, an open bay pole barn, which means it was open in terms of it didn't have doors on either side of it. Sounds like the kind of place you would dance. It's a pole barn. <laughs> oh, I was thinking footloose. See, her mind always no, no, goes no. to the gutter. And we leave the pole dancing to Kathy with a C. <laughs> Everybody would be extremely disappointed. <laughs> Is that how you met your husband? <laughs> No, that's not how. <laughs> and it also had a closed base shop. When officers knocked on the door, Bruce's wife, who was also Joshua's mom, answered the door and consented to a search of the house. I could see mom being like, sure, come on in, check it out. <laughs> you know? Well, I just cleaned, but don't mind exactly. the kitchen. It's got dishes Would in it. Would you like some lemonade? <laughs> exactly. It was winter. It was coffee. Hot cocoa. Exactly. Maybe a little schnapps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lucky Bailey's maybe. Officers were able to locate Bruce in a room above the garage that was accessible from an outside entrance. The officers and Bruce went into the house where Bruce spoke at length with an FBI special agent about his political views. Bruce and his wife eventually were asked to leave the property for the night, and a warrant to conduct a search of the house and property was obtained the next morning. For several days, law enforcement executed the search warrant at the Jefferson property. Members of the Lynn County Search and Rescue Team walked shoulder to shoulder in the 750 acres of fields surrounding the farm looking for evidence. Now, as a city girl, I wasn't sure how big that was, but just so you know, it's just over one square mile. Hmm. 
which is huge. That is a lot. Among other things, investigators looked for items consistent with components of the bomb that were visible in the pre-blast photographs or that had been otherwise discovered during the post-blast investigation, as well as any items relating to the track phones. Inside the house, investigators discovered and seized a desktop computer, a laptop computer, and a track phone brochure along with other papers. Inside Kathy's pole barn. (laughs) (laughs) Where everyone watching is very disappointed. (laughs) Which Bruce and son Joshua used as a shop for their biodiesel business. Investigators found tools and other items consistent with welding and metal fabrication work that could have been used to construct the bomb. And electrical connectors consistent with connectors visible in the pre-blast bomb photographs. They also found two motors that are called servo motors, which is a type of motor used in remote control toys. This was very interesting to investigators because by this time they had been able to determine that the bomb contained a servo motor. The floor in the metalworking area of the pole barn displayed cut marks consistent with the dimensions of the bomb from the pre-blast photographs. Outside the pole barn, at a picnic area along a riverbank on the Willamette River, Investigators found an empty plastic container for Tovex. This is a powerful high explosive that is considered to have several advantages over traditional dynamite, including being safer to manufacture, transport, and store. Investigators also found items similar to components of the bomb. In a shallow area of the river nearby, a dive team found similar metal pieces, another Tovex container, and fuse-type blasting caps. The appearance of the items led investigators to believe that they had not been exposed to weather or river water for a significant period of time. Based on the evidence seized from the property, Bruce was arrested on Tuesday, December 16, 2008, just four days after the bombing and two days after his son Joshua had been arrested. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In addition to the search of Bruce's property, investigators searched Joshua's home in North Salem, where they seized receipts for two laptop computers, although they only found one. So, Kath, my understanding is that they believe that he bought two laptops and used the internal parts from one of the laptops to help create this bomb. That was my understanding as well. But remember, when the police asked if he had bought laptops recently, he said he had, but one of them had been stolen. He just hadn't reported it to police. Yeah, exactly. Investigators also uncovered video surveillance footage from November 26 at a Bend Walmart. And this is 16 days prior to the bombing. And Joshua is seen on the video purchasing track phones. Also that same day, they found that somebody had purchased a servo motor and toggles, the same kind of toggles that were actually on the bomb but they didn't specifically tie those purchases to Joshua or Bruce. Investigators determined that the bomb was designed to detonate remotely from a distance of several hundred feet to possibly a few miles. Investigators further determined that the bomb ran on two circuits that required both toggle switches to be in the on position for detonation to occur. There was an internal toggle switch, which was controlled by a remote detonator, and an external toggle switch, which could only be activated by hand. Both of these toggles had to be in the on position. If one or the other was in the off position, there would be no detonation. So investigators theorized that when the bomb was planted outside the West Coast Bank, the external switch was placed in the on position. Then, while Trooper Hakeem and Captain Tennant worked to dismantle the bomb, the internal toggle was activated by a stray radio signal operating on the same radio frequency range as the receiver inside the bomb. This is something they said that could have been a signal sent from a nearby CB radio or garage door opener or something like that, and that would have been sufficient to trigger the explosion. That is terrible. Absolutely. In separate identical indictments, the state jointly charged Bruce and Joshua Turnage with aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, first-degree assault, second-degree assault, unlawful manufacture of a destructive device, and unlawful possession of a destructive device. The motive included in the grand jury indictment was robbery. Nine months to the day after the bank bombing, Marion County Deputy DA Cortland Geyer announced that they would seek the death penalty for Bruce and Joshua Turnage. Marion County Circuit Judge Thomas Hart, who was assigned to the case, said the Turnage's trial would likely start in September 2010. Before trial, Joshua moved to sever his trial from his dad's. 
The state objected, and the trial court denied the motion. Prior to trial, Judge Hart imposed a gag order that prohibited the parties in the turnage case or their employers from making public comments. This was done to protect the integrity of the court process and avoid the risk of a mistrial. So, Kath, the purpose of severing is if a defense attorney thinks that you, alongside your co-defendant, which, of course, their father's son, if that's going to look bad for the jury, like, in other words, me sitting next to my dad is going to look bad. It looks like we're acting in concert. But I am sure the judge was like, hey, look, we can't sever this. There is so much duplicative evidence that we would have to be basically having two trials on the same point. And I'm sure he was like, absolutely not. We're not doing it. Approximately 1,600 jury summons were sent to residents of Marion County, with 400 able to attend the selection process. 12 jurors and four alternates would be selected. And selection began on Wednesday, September 8, 2010, 21 months after the bombing, with the entire jury selection process expected to take up to three weeks. And in this case, they did jury questionnaires where the jurors fill out these questionnaires tailored to the facts of the case to try to bring out bias. But they're very effective in a case like this where the evidence is going to be voluminous and they're trying to suss out people's bias. They were also done to see if they would be willing to vote for the death penalty. Remember, this has been announced as a death Mm -hmm. penalty case. Definitely. Trial began on September 29th, 2010. Opening statements lasted four and a half hours. And the prosecution spoke for three of those. Do you think that's a lot? I think it's very much. I think it's three hours is a lot for opening statement. What would average be? Gosh, honestly, Kath, I have no idea, but it wouldn't surprise me if average came in around an hour. Wow. Yeah. Poor jurors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But here's the thing. Um, So an opening statement is not argument. It is literally setting the tone on your theme for the trial. And you are also telling the jurors what you believe the evidence is going to show and how you intend to prove guilt. Now, here's the thing. The deputy DA who did the opening statement was Katie Suver. And I believe she had co-counsel on this, but I can't remember that person's name. She had two. She had Matt Kemi and Cortland Geyer. Okay. So there is a great deal, as you can imagine, with two dead law enforcement officers, a great deal of pressure for her to perform as well as her co-counsel. Well, and especially, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but especially in a small town, these guys were family. It doesn't sound silly. I am sure she had, all three prosecutors had the weight of the world on their shoulders and defense counsel as well. Like defense counsel is thinking, oh my God, everybody's looking at this case. Right. Like there's just a lot of pressure. And, And it does not surprise me entirely that she took three hours to present her picture of what happened because she didn't want to miss a thing. So she summed up her case, basically telling the jurors that she expected to show evidence of a threatening phone call to the bank, a cell phone that was thought to be a bomb before the bomb text determined it was a hoax, and then, of course, the explosion itself. She also described the destruction caused by the blast. The damage to the bank was severe. The lights and windows were blown out, There was debris falling from the ceiling as if it were raining, and the walls had buckled from the force of the blast. A code zero, the police radio code used only in the direst emergencies, went out on the radios. 
The first arriving officers found Trooper Hakim and Captain Tennant literally in pieces. They wrapped their belts around what was left of Chief Russell's leg in an attempt to stop him from bleeding out. Although Bruce and Joshua Turnage were being tried jointly, they had separate teams of attorneys representing them. During opening statements, both teams maintained their client's innocence. But Joshua's defense attorney, Steve Krasick, surprised everyone by blaming Joshua's dad, Bruce, for the fatal blast and calling Joshua a fifth victim. They said Joshua was not involved in the bombing plot, but was connected to the evidence because he unknowingly assisted his father in one of his crazy plots. Now, one of the things that was very shocking, I think is going to be the word I use, is that Joshua's defense attorney actually told the story of two flawed men who were responsible for what happened that day. One of the flawed men was Joshua's father, Bruce. The other flawed man was Trooper Hakim and said that it was the decision to move the bomb that caused the deaths. That is a very risky move. Like I said, it was shocking to me when I heard it. Yeah. And remember, this is all still opening arguments. Right. But he also has to, like, put that out there, right? He knows he has a very provocative defense where he is blaming a dead man who was in law enforcement in a very small community. A first responder who put himself in front of a bomb. Correct. So he has to float his very provocative defense in opening statement. And I am 100% sure he was trying to gauge the jury's reaction as he was saying the words. And he was trying to set up a technical defense, really. He was trying to say, hey, look, technically the bomb was detonated through no fault of my client. But can you imagine dad sitting there being like, what? My son's throwing me under the bus? Right. Well, and so Bruce Turnage's defense attorney, John Storkel, called Joshua a liar and said that the state was taking evidence against Bruce out of context in order to convict him. It was like, no, he's the one. No, he's the one. Right. They were just pointing at each other. Yeah. In seeking to prove the whereabouts of both defendants on the day of the bombing, testimony was given about the telephone carrier and cell tower records from the personal cell phones of Bruce and Joshua Turnage, together with records showing the track phone activations at the Best Western in North Salem. The cell phone company and cell tower records revealed a movement pattern establishing that sometime after 1.40 in the morning on the day of the bombing, Joshua drove from his home to his dad's home in Jefferson. Approximately two and a half hours later, they left in separate cars, but they both drove to the Best Western and were in the parking lot when the track phones were activated. Three hours after the phones were activated, records placed them in the area of Woodburn, and shortly after 10 a.m., one of the phones placed a call to the Wells Fargo Bank from the Woodburn area. Each man eventually returned home at about 2.30 in the afternoon, several hours before the 5.17 p.m. explosion. As to Joshua's and Bruce's respective reactions and demeanors on the evening of the blast and during the days after the bombing, witnesses came to the stand and testified that neither acted unusually. Each continued with his ordinary activities and did not display any noticeable change in behavior or affect. Investigators and handwriting experts also provided information regarding a possible motive. Investigators discovered evidence that Bruce and Joshua had planned to rob a bank. Specifically, 
the FBI analyzed a handwritten paper retrieved from a trash can at Bruce's property, which, based on handwriting analysis, they testified had likely been written by Joshua. It was determined that the paper contained a series of numbers that ultimately calculated the weight and monetary total of particular physical counts of bills. For example, the weight of $500,000 in 20s or 50s, and how much various amounts would weigh for purposes of transporting the bills in 100-pound bags. Which is actually really smart. So smart. Because when you see the movies and you're I mean, like... for crooks, you know. Right. <laughs> but when you see movies and they're like, I want $100,000 in small bills and they're carrying around a duffel bag. Yeah, and here's my duffel bag. Exactly. And it fits. <laughs> and it's all the money that's in there. So I'm actually surprised that they figured out that that wasn't true. Yeah. And they didn't like mail a duffel bag to them. Right. Exactly. You'd have to back up your pickup truck, that big white well, pickup truck to the front door of the bank. <laughs> but even then, you're going to be low riding to the point of popping tires. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> On the computer seized from Bruce's property, investigators also found evidence of fairly recent internet searches for monetary conversions and offshore bank accounts. Friends and associates testified that Bruce and Joshua had spoken in the past hypothetically about bank robbery, with Bruce in particular frequently describing different bank robbery scenarios, which included the use of explosives or fire as diversion. There were also conversations about the use of remote-controlled cars to deliver explosives. Also, a friend of Joshua's testified at the time of the bombing, both Joshua and Bruce were having personal financial troubles, and their biodiesel business was not generating any profit. Joshua's former fiancé testified that she saw Joshua and Bruce react jubilantly to news of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing because they thought the bombing was an appropriate citizen response given earlier events at Ruby Ridge, Idaho in 1992 and Waco, Texas in 1993. In addition, during a hunting trip in early November 2008, Bruce and Joshua agreed that the upcoming presidential election likely would infringe on their Second Amendment rights. Over the years, Joshua also told friends and acquaintances repeatedly of his intense dislike of police and distrust of banks. Evidence was presented by both defendants that blamed law enforcement for the detonation of the bomb, attempting to show that in assessing the nature of the bomb and its destructive potential, law enforcement officers acted negligently or otherwise deviated from standard operating procedures. By introducing this evidence, they were attempting to show that the bomb exploded as a result of law enforcement manipulation of the box. The theme of trooper negligence was prominent throughout by the defense, blaming Trooper Hakim for detonating the bomb. Joshua took the stand in his own defense and testified that Bruce alone had planned a bank robbery, built and planted the bomb at West Coast Bank, and placed the life-threatening call to Wells Fargo Bank. Unlike Joshua, Bruce did not testify at trial. During closing arguments, Bruce's attorney John Storkel said that without the intent to kill, Bruce could not be convicted of the most serious charge of aggravated murder. Deputy District Attorney Matt Kemi said that if Bruce and Joshua did not intend to cause an explosion, they could have built a fake bomb. Quote, you know how you build a bomb that doesn't go off? It's easy. You don't build a real bomb. They intended for it to maim and kill. That's what they did. They are murderers. End quote. 
After closing arguments, Judge Hart told the jurors to consider each defendant's case separately. On the afternoon of December 7, 2010, more than two months after the trial began and almost two years to the day of the bombing, the case went to the jury. The next morning, after four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous verdict for both defendants on all charges. Guilty. The penalty phase for Bruce began the next day, and jurors were tasked with deciding if the death penalty was an appropriate sentence. After three days of testimony, on December 13, 2010, the jury began deliberations. The next day, after deliberating for approximately five hours, the jury returned the sentencing verdict for Bruce. It was given to Judge Hart and sealed in an envelope. The decision would not be known until the penalty phase for Joshua was decided. That phase for Joshua began on December 15, 2010. And on the 22nd, after four hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously decided on Joshua's sentence. The jury found that both men should be sentenced to death. So all death penalty cases are automatically appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court. And collectively, the defendants raised a ton of issues. This was a really, really long opinion. And thankfully, Kathy was the one who read it. <laughs> well, I am an attorney now, you know. <laughs> but there were a couple things that we found interesting. So one of the things that defense counsel brought up on appeal, there were two issues, really, that we thought were interesting. One was intent and one was causation. So they're like, hey, we didn't intend to cause this bomb to detonate the way it did. And we were not the ones who actually detonated the bomb. And the prosecution didn't fight with that issue. The prosecution didn't try to prove they detonated the bomb. The second issue was causation. They were saying, hey, look, you're accusing us of aggravated murder, but we were not the ones who detonated the bomb. Therefore, we did not cause the death, nor did we intend to cause the death. So intent and causation were raised on appeal. So in Oregon, the criminal liability requires the commission of an act combined with a culpable mental state. The defense said, hey, look, at best, the defendants were reckless in their intent. It was not sufficient to hold them culpable for aggravated murder. But the court pointed out that for criminal homicide, the mental state element has as its object the causing of the death of another human being. And they ultimately said, look, we're rejecting the defendant's position because... There is no requirement in the law to cause the death of a specifically identified person. The Court of Appeal held that the state satisfied its burden showing that criminal homicide was intentionally committed because the defendant had the conscious objective of causing the death of any person or all persons in harm's way. Because the defendant intended to cause the death of one or more human beings, regardless of whether or not the defendant knew their identity. One of the things the defendants alleged is that the destruction of the bomb was because Trooper Hakim brought it inside the bank. But what investigators said was that being contained inside a bank building, it actually caused significantly less destruction because the way it was built, if it had been outside, like where they planted it, the damage would have been much more significant and had the potential to kill many more people. Exactly. So as to the issue of causation, remember the defense is saying it was this flawed man, Trooper Hakim, 
who actually did the detonation, we did not cause. So we are not the causal connection to the deaths. And the Court of Appeals said, okay, look, interesting argument. However, but no, <laughs> exactly. The test for causation was whether the state's evidence was legally sufficient to prove that defendants' intentional actions were a cause of the victim's death. So even though they weren't the ones who triggered the actual explosion, the court said, doesn't matter. Anybody could have, and they knew it. Yeah, you set the ball in motion, but for your behavior, this never would have happened. And conduct can be the cause and fact of the harm without being the only harm. So there are certain factors that could combine to create an outcome. However, yours was the most important. You're the fools who created the bomb. You're the fools who placed the bomb. You're the fools who, you know... Made phone calls to get police there. Exactly. So you were the legal proximate cause of the explosion. So although the Oregon Supreme Court affirmed the conviction... Many other appeals have taken place since then. On June 14, 2021, according to an article by Noel Crombie in The Oregonian, Joshua Turnage wrote a letter to the Oregon Supreme Court. So now Joshua is 44 years old. He's been in prison all this time at the Two Rivers Correctional Institute. And he requested in this letter that the Supreme Court send his case back to the trial court he wanted to cease all appeal efforts, and he wanted the trial court to sign his death warrant. Turnage's letter did not explain why he wanted to drop his legal appeals, and the status of his request was unclear at the time of this article. I could find nothing else about the status of his request, but all of my research indicates that he is still alive and in prison. Woodburn Police Chief Scott Russell was released from a Portland-area hospital on February 3, 2009, almost eight weeks after the bombing. He was transferred to a rehabilitation facility to continue his recovery, where he stayed for several more weeks. On Tuesday, June 16, 2009, six months after the bombing, Chief Russell spoke publicly for the first time about the tragedy that saw his life irrevocably changed. His injuries included the loss of his right leg, a twice-broken jaw, a broken tibia in his left leg, and an injured heel. Russell shared that he was put in a drug-induced coma for seven days after the blast, and although he has no memories of the actual explosion, he remembered waking up a week later. The first face he saw was his wife, who had the daunting task of telling him about his injuries and losing his leg. After five months and 28 surgeries, Chief Russell was finally able to return to his home. At the time he spoke, he had another surgery for his left leg scheduled in the following week, but said he was optimistic that he would be able to walk again with the help of a prosthetic. He also planned to stay on as Woodburn's chief of police. Russell said he did not hold any animosity toward the alleged bombers. My faith asked me to forgive them. Hating them or holding anger toward them will not do anything for my healing but I do believe they are where they need to be. After the verdicts, the families of the officers killed in the bombing declined to comment to the press, but the Woodburn Police Department issued a statement that quoted Chief Russell. Our staff continues to honor Captain Tom Tennant and Trooper Bill Hakim's memories by serving our community with courage and pride, and we will never forget their sacrifice and service. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. 
And thank you for sharing with your friends and family, coworkers, colleagues, strangers you meet on the street. Anyone who's willing to listen to you. (laughs) Exactly, because that's what we do. But I did want to mention we received a review on Apple Podcasts from a listener who goes by Monkey41312. And the review says, I'm a huge crime junkie fan. And personally, it's hard to find something that measures up. But I have to say, I really, really enjoy this podcast. I love Kathy and Kathy. I feel like I can relate to them. And they make me laugh and always seem to say exactly what I'm thinking. So I feel like I'm sitting with friends having a conversation about true crime. I also really enjoy the fun facts, I guess you could call them. Little details about the investigation or the people that you wouldn't get otherwise. Sometimes they make me laugh. Sometimes they make me gasp. They're just really good and interesting. I appreciate you guys creating this podcast. I'm so glad I found you. That is such a high compliment. Comparing us to Crime Junkie? Like, that's amazing. <laughs> They're the top of the heap. And even to be compared to them is heartwarming. But it was so nice that, that this person took the time to say that. Exactly. Okay. Very cool. So thank you. Yes. So thank you very much. Anybody else who wants to give us a five-star review, please feel free. <laughs> when we get more popular, we'll do a dramatic reading of all of our bad reviews. And there you go. <laughs> If you aren't following us on social media, please do so. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.